It's Thursday, September 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. United Airlines has the strictest vaccine mandate of all U.S. airlines and just announced that they will move to fire almost 600 workers who failed to comply. The company has about 67,000 employees, and about 96% of them have been vaccinated. Others who sought exemptions for religious or medical reasons will be placed on temporary unpaid leave. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, joins us for how the ball is dropping for those refusing the mandate. Next, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has announced that 23 animals and plants have been cleared off the endangered species list and are officially extinct. The most notable animal on the list is the ivory-billed woodpecker, which is sometimes referred to as the Lord God bird. The last reported sighting was in 2004, but even then, it was not confirmed. Dino Grandoni, environmental reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, Texas politics is taking over America. Recent happenings there, such as the strict new abortion law, the Haitian immigrant crisis, and any action taken on COVID, have all extended beyond the Texas borders and influenced the national debate on those topics. Marissa Martinez, fellow at Politico, joins us for how everyone is talking about Texas. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. All of our employees recognized this is not an easy decision. They recognized that there was the potential for blowback and criticism of the company as a result. But I hope that they are just as gratified as we have been that the compliments and support for this policy have far outweighed the criticism that we've received. Joining us now is Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about United Airlines. They have the strictest mandate of any U.S. airline when it comes to vaccines. They have about 96% of their workforce, that's 67,000 people that have been vaccinated already, but there are a few holdouts as there are in many parts of the country and in many industries. But what they're doing is they're getting ready to fire almost 600 employees that did not comply with this vaccine mandate. So, Leslie, fill us in. What's uh, United Airlines doing? So over the summer, um, I think it was August 6th, United said that every single employee must be vaccinated. We will review medical and religious exemptions on a case-by-case basis. The deadline for this has passed. This was Monday. And now uh, United is getting ready to fire 593 people who don't have an exemption or not being reviewed for an exemption, but simply uh, refuse to get a vaccine, which is really an incredible turnout. If you think they have 67,000 employees, this is less than 1% of its U.S. workforce. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so uh, let's start off with the people that applied for exemptions. Uh, I guess it was about 2,000 employees that tried to get these exemptions, whether it was for religious or medical. Uh, How many of those did get exemptions? So those numbers are not out yet. United is still reviewing some of those cases. And what they've said, this goes into the part of their very strict mandate, is that people who do get exemptions will be put on unpaid leave. Um, What's likely to happen is they will have some kind of uh, testing procedure. They might get moved to other jobs where they're not customer facing, not, you know, high risk for themselves or other employees or customers. So that's likely going to happen. There is some there's a lawsuit going on. For six United employees sued the company for discrimination, saying that they didn't get the exemptions that they applied for. So that's kind of holding up the process a little bit. So in October, about mid-October, we're going to get a little bit more clarity on what they're going to do with those people. 
And for those that are going to be fired, they're saying that the process could take weeks. And I guess, you know, working with HR and all that stuff, as you go through the process, they're still giving people leeway. They're saying, if, you know, if you change your mind during this, we will probably still keep you on. Yeah, and United doesn't want to let people go, right? United is going to work with these people, as we said. They're going to essentially kind of give them another chance uh, if they do want to get vaccinated so they don't have to terminate them. It doesn't mean the deadline passed and everyone walks off the property today or tomorrow. Um, it does take weeks. The unions have to get involved. This is a U.S. airline heavily unionized. Um, and we've already seen some grievances filed on behalf of those employees. But we are talking about very few people. I mean, we're talking about I think, 20 pilots. There are fewer than 400 uh, customer service, fleet service ramp workers, people like that. And I think fewer than 100 flight attendants. So it's not it's not a big number. And they will work with them over the next few weeks. But for the most part, United is done. We have the Biden mandates that's coming out soon. And they're, you know, <laughs> the CEO told us today they're kind of sitting pretty ready for the uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving and end of year holidays where other airlines might have to scramble to sort of catch up to where United is. One of the other interesting things, though, you know, just for these 593 employees that are getting fired, one of the things is that they're being terminated on the grounds of violating company safety policy. So they're not eligible for unemployment benefits. I mean, this is really tough for those people that are sticking it out that long. Uh, It is. And it it does vary state by state. But many states, if you're fired with cause, sometimes it has to fall under the category of misconduct, you know, something very egregious. It could jeopardize their chances of getting those unemployment benefits. Yes, they could work somewhere else. I mean, airlines are very interesting and unique companies in that they're very much based on seniority. So if you're in a, a unionized position, you kind of lose your place. if you start over elsewhere. But some people feel very strongly this is a very emotional issue. It's a political issue for many people, and it's personal. And I think that some people might just stick it out and and say, I'll look for employment elsewhere. Yeah, totally. You know, but with all of this, it does kind of affect, at least, you know, mostly for pilots and and flight attendants and all. It it could affect where you fly because they're, depending on other countries and the rules that they have, if you're not vaccinated, they're not going to let you in. So there's already some that have had to be, you know, reworked or changed, uh, you know, their flight paths just uh, because they, they, they wouldn't be able to go into whatever country that has those rules. That's exactly right. And, and United, since August, has kept its own list for pilots and flight attendants and, and kind of limited where uh, they can go. And they had to be vaccinated to go to places like Italy, India. Colombia, Peru, the whole list of countries. And uh, of course, it's a moot point because United has the vaccine and, and their crews are largely vaccinated already. And that was just on the concern you know, of, of case counts in those countries, health facility availability and things like that. But American Airlines, which does not have a vaccine mandate, has so far resisted it and done what other airlines have done or several airlines have done, which is provide incentives, extra time off, extra pay um, to get people to get vaccinated. They're finding that for Canada, Guyana, Suriname, those countries are requiring or about to require that crews are vaccinated. And American Airlines told us they expect that list to grow. So once we see maybe like the European Union or, or countries in Europe where airlines have a lot more service, it could influence vaccination rates, and it, it could also become a scheduling headache uh, when you're going to have to start pulling crews off certain trips that they can't fly. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. 
There hasn't been an undisputed sighting of this bird since the 1940s, despite tremendous effort on the part of amateurs and professionals to go down into these swamps and search for it. Joining us now is Dino Grandoni, environmental reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Dino. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, we got word from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that they're going to declare 23 different species of uh, animal and plant extinct. The highest billed one on this is going to be the ivory-billed woodpecker, who a lot of people call the Lord God bird. But we're looking at things like uh, mussels, other birds, uh, some, and uh, as I mentioned, some plants and things like that too. But Dino, start us off with the ivory-billed woodpecker, and you know why we're officially declaring it extinct now. We're talking about this really iconic bird of the South that once ranged all the way from North Carolina to East Texas. And, and it had been this bird that really declined precipitously in the 1800s as much of those woods were logged and much of its habitat was lost. And its numbers were further driven down by collectors shooting the birds and sometimes even selling the feathers to hat makers. And different sightings over the course of the 20th century helped sustain hope. Teddy Roosevelt spotted three during a hunting trip in Louisiana ornithologists from Cornell went down there in the 20s and 30s and were able to get photographs and video and audio recordings of the bird. But that's really all we have left. There hasn't been an undisputed sighting of this bird since the 1940s, despite tremendous effort on the part of amateurs and professionals to go down into these swamps and search for it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of been a ghost of sorts, really, for a very, very long time. As you mentioned, those early sightings you know, in the early 1900s and all, all the way up to like 1934, I guess they saw them and stuff. But in 2004, there was a possible sighting. They said it could have been a related bird. So really, it's been kind of missing for quite some time. Yeah, it has been. And uh, that is the case with a lot of the species on this list. Many people think that they may have already gone extinct before even the passage of the Endangered Species Act in the 1970s, or that they may have gone extinct shortly after that. A lot of the scientists I talked to for this story said that really the protections that the act afforded and the government and states could, the federal government and the states could provide came too late for a lot of these animals. Yeah. And, you know, there, I mean, the Endangered Species Act does a lot. There's, it has its uh, people that praise it. There's people that are detractors that say, you know, it's pretty costly and impedes, you know, new building and, and things like that. But it's been kind of credited with saving at least a bald eagle, brown pelican, gray wolf, American alligator. But as I mentioned, there there are detractors to what the Endangered Species Act does as well. Yeah, I mean, detractors will point out that very few of the species that are listed ever are recovered. About 3% have been recovered. But, you know, proponents of the law will say that it takes a tremendous amount of time to save a species And uh, the law has been successful at resurrecting the different animals you just mentioned there, like icons like the bald eagle and uh, the American alligator and such. What's going on politically with this? Because uh, I guess the Trump administration was trying to make some tweaks. The Biden administration is trying to tweak it back the way it was before. So what are we seeing with that? The Trump administration had... um, put forward some rules that work to overhaul how the law was implemented, including by making it easier to remove protections for threatened species and allowing wildlife managers to consider the economic cost of conserving an animal when weighing whether to issue protections. 
And the Biden administration has come in and moved to reverse those policies. In addition, President Biden has vowed to set aside nearly a third of all the nation's land and water to protect wildlife and to address climate change. Although his administration hasn't really articulated exactly what that means and exactly how they're going to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. There's a lot of political will that goes into putting an animal on the list. As you mentioned, there's a lot of costs, economic, possible economic costs, too. So it's tough. And then the process takes a long time. I guess it, you uh, mentioned in the article, on average, a species waits a dozen years to become uh, to receive protection on this. And looking ahead, what are we seeing? I, uh, you mentioned the monarch butterfly and some back and forth even on the gray wolf. So the monarch butterfly out in the West has dropped really incredibly. And this is, you know, I know I'm using the word iconic a lot, but this is an iconic species of the West. Uh, You know, John Steinbeck wrote about how monarch created these orangey clouds in the sky in California. And uh, we're seeing fewer of them now. So in December, the Fish and Wildlife Service decided not to put it on the endangered species list, even though the science said that it is warranted for protection. And they said they They simply didn't have the resources to protect it at the moment. So a few years from now, they're going to look back at that decision and perhaps list it. They'll they'll reconsider it. But for now, the monarch remains unprotected. And uh, different people I've talked to say that this is just too common for the Fish and Wildlife Service to take too long to protect a lot of these species. Dino Grandoni, environmental reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. The state of Texas, we are arresting and jailing anybody who comes across the border illegally and trespasses on private property or on public land. Joining us now is Marissa Martinez, fellow at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Marissa. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I I saw this funny meme floating around on the Internet, and it was a scene uh, from Harry Potter. One of the professors says, why is it when something happens, it's always you three? And then it shows a picture of the three kids, and it says over their uh, bodies, it says Florida, California, and Texas. And that's kind of the way it's been with a lot of different political happenings throughout the country in recent times, whether it's COVID or Texas, we're going to talk about specifically right now, just all sorts of stuff coming out of them. You know, we have the abortion law that happened. Uh, We have all these Haitian immigrants in Del Rio, Texas. So immigration is a central point right now out of Texas. There's four new reviews of the 2020 vote. We're still doing that. All that happened just in the month of September. So uh, Texas politics is kind of taking over in a lot of different ways. So, uh, Marissa, tell us a little bit more about it. What are we seeing? Yes, yeah, so absolutely. Um, this past year, um, Texas had uh, one of its legislative sessions beginning in the winter. And from then on, we saw a slate of pretty conservative agenda items being passed. I think some of the ones that you just mentioned that made really big news, like the abortion legislation and legislation about permitless carry and some other um, bills went into effect just recently in early September. And then combining that with the big Democratic walkout to Washington, D.C. from the the state's capital um, for Democratic lawmakers to try to protest their elections bill that was recently just signed. Um, Yeah, there's just been a lot going on in the state for sure. Totally. And, you know, while all politics is local, as they say, 
and obviously these are things pertaining to Texas themselves, it sparks that national conversation. These things have reverberations throughout the country. As I mentioned, California and Florida in a similar way, things that happen in these states end up being part of the conversation all over the country. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Texas is, of course, a really big state in the country. But I think um, there's a lot going on politically as well. It's pretty um, in the open. So Greg Abbott has been um, gearing up to run in his new gubernatorial race next year. Um, He's been floating around a presidential campaign, perhaps. And then, of course, you know, Texas is getting bigger. There's a lot more tension happening between some of these bigger, more liberal cities and then the Republican-dominated state legislature. So um, I think that the conditions have been set for a while. And 2021 is really when um, a lot of these things came to a head and exploded, especially with COVID and with ERCOT, the state's um, energy infrastructure being out in the open. All these debates happening nationally around critical race theory or things like voting rights. So it's really it's been a long time coming. And I think we're kind of seeing the true effects of that now. As for the governor's seat, uh, you mentioned that uh, Abbott will have to run for reelection next year. I know people have been saying Beto O'Rourke might run. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it, as you mentioned, it's a solid, solidly red state. I mean, I don't think that he's in much danger or, or what are you hearing out there? Yeah, I think it's hard to tell, um, particularly because no Democratic candidate um, or work or otherwise has officially announced yet. And right now it's kind of just seeming to be a contest between Abbott and some of his challengers. And I've heard from some Democratic lawmakers who are saying that they believe if someone like O'Rourke can kind of build towards a more centrist message and different, you know, from his previous campaigns and try to build solidarity among both liberal voters as well as maybe some moderates or independents who are disaffected by the current governor that he could stand a chance. But again, as of now, there is no um, right, yeah. announced candidate. So it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, if he leans too hard to the left, you're going to lose a lot of people on that front. Uh, what do we make of the Trump effect still in Texas? I know he uh, kind of said, uh, calling for, you know, a look into the elections again, even though he won the state. And the governor, Greg Abbott, uh, jumped into action pretty soon and announced that there were going to be some new audits there in the state. He said um, recently in an interview with Fox News Sunday that the audits apparently have been going on for a few months, but um, the top county officials in those four counties, which are some of the most populous in the state, said that they weren't aware of such an audit until the statement from the Secretary of State's office came out on Thursday. And so um, it seems like people are still a bit confused about what the audit will actually entail, um, how long it's been in the process. And of course, you know, Donald Trump won the state um, in nearly six points over Biden during the last election. And so I think some county officials are just a little bit confused about why this is going on and potentially worried about the waste of taxpayer money. Marissa Martinez, fellow at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.